Good day to you, and welcome to episode 66 of You Don't Have to Yell. It's Dan Sally, the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting himself, and you'll notice that we're forgoing the standard theme music today, as I'm figuring we've all had a long night, and maybe our nerves are just a little bit shot. And it might be a good idea to turn down the volume a little bit. So for this episode, we're going to be taking a trip to France. Cue the music, Gino. To the banks of the River Seine, where this episode's guest was born and raised until age 12 when his family relocated to the United States. Now, his father was active in French politics, and our guest inherited the bug, aligning with the Republican Party in his youth. And while first dismissing Trump as a joke when he came on the scene in the Republican primary, he soon came to see Trump as just the thing we need to correct everything that was wrong in this country. And he became one of the most MAGA guys I know. Now, given the current climate, I will be keeping our guest anonymous and known only by the pseudonym Pierre Dumaga. If he doesn't kill me for the accordion music, he's going to kill me for that one. But anyone who's listened to this podcast knows I love talking with conservatives on this show, despite the fact I'm not pro-Trump. This conversation, though, specifically really helped me truly understand the MAGA movement and how Trump has developed such a dedicated following. And I wanted to get this out right after the election. It may seem odd, but I think we really need to focus on understanding and reconciliation if we're going to move forward as a nation, regardless of how this thing goes. And this conversation helped me. I hope it helps you. I'm going to be back at the end with some final thoughts. The first thing we should do, though, before we get into anything, is set the stage that it is Thursday, uh, October 29th. So we are just a few days away from the election. Neither of us know how this is going to go. And I wanted to have you here now because I'm afraid that by Thursday of next week, nobody's going to want to talk about this. So, (laughs) you know, so um, if we're lucky. If we're lucky. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And we'll get into that. But I'll tell you, so what I found the most intriguing and and what I found the most compelling about you and about your story is the fact that you, as far as I can tell, are one of the more MAGA guys that I know Mm -hmm. um, in the immediate vicinity. Yep. And your background because you were, you know, you spent the first part of your life in France. That's correct. For, yeah. yeah, I was born. I was born in. Um, I was born in France in uh, the mid eighties, and uh, my whole, my whole, you know, my whole family is French, uh, both sides, uh, uncles, aunts, grandparents. Everybody is from is from France, and uh, moved to the U.S. Uh, in the late nineteen nineties with my parents and brother, and have lived here ever since. So how old were you when you moved I was, here? I was just turning 12. We moved in August and I turned 12 in September of 1998, which I remember that that year very well because the French won the World Cup uh, for the first time 
1998. So it was like uh, the high watermark of France. We won the, the World Cup and then we, uh, yeah, we got out of there and moved to the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Leave on a high note, you know? That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's the peak. That's, That's the peak it, right man. There. It's not getting better than this. Let's get out of here. That's yeah. right. Were your parents or was your family political or politically active? Yes. And this is in France? This is in France, yes. And it's yeah. funny, I was just discussing this actually uh, tonight at dinner where, you know, one of the first things that I learned when I came to the U.S. as a you know, as, as a teenager was like, there are two things that you don't talk about at the dinner table in America, mm-hmm. and that's politics and religion. And I looked at people, I'm like, that's like the only two things we talk about in France at the dinner table. So the French people in general, I feel, are discuss these issues all the time. There's nothing really taboo. Now, making a generalization, I'm sure it's not true for every family in France, but I just get a feeling that to discuss political things is much more common. Also, my family happens to be very opinionated and political on you know both sides of, of my family. So I grew up arguing with my dad about all kinds of things, getting into screaming matches. <laughs> um, and, and actually, uh, but the politics is important because my father supported a French uh, right-wing president called Jacques Chirac, who was elected, I believe, yeah. in 1995. And he like helped with the campaign and he won. It's actually a, a short media clip of me at like the campaign event, sort of like uh, celebrating the victory of Jacques Chirac. And, and what happened after that, it's basically the next three years, right? Because we left in 98. So between his election in 95 and my parents moving in 98, my father just became completely disappointed with all the campaign promises uh, just never panned out. And he, he just felt like France was not changing and um, especially its relationship to to, to 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 working and the work culture in France was just not what my dad wanted. And he just felt like France was heading in the wrong direction. So in many ways, his disappointment, his disillusionment, mm-hmm. Jacques Chirac's presidency is directly led us to kind of immigrate to, to the United States. Got it. So what was it specific about the policies that were so disappointing? They were pushing a lot of very restrictive labor laws. One in particular that became kind of famous was the 35-hour week, which mm-hmm. is basically this attempt at restricting the amount of hours that somebody could work to only 35 hours. One of the things that I think folks in America may or may not realize is that in Europe on the whole, but I, I think especially France, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. has a fairly deep tradition of socialism and yes. a fairly, and, 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 and I, I don't say that in the demagogic way you might hear the word socialism thrown mm-hmm. around here. Like there are, there's a, a much stronger labor movement, a much stronger uh, push for uh, labor rights yep. uh, in, in Europe. And, yes. and, and, and you're, and and from what I've seen, um, in, in a lot of cases, the folks who might be a little more entrepreneurial find that frustrating or find that confining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment. I think the one thing that I would add to that, just to make people, because I think the, the the word socialism carries a lot of baggage, especially in America. I think it's still yeah. a slur. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. Um, in the French, it definitely isn't a slur. Um, I think people are, are socialist and, and proudly so. I think what you can definitely say is there is uh, you know, a centrally planned economy or a centrally governed country in the sense that like we have 
you know, a, a city in the kind of the middle of France called, called Paris. You may have heard of it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of from there that the whole country is managed because France has this tendency to really want to keep things very centrally planned, very top down. Socialism was very natural to, to the French because it's kind of the way we had organized things to begin with. It's really interesting that you say that because I've thought for quite some time that countries are very often representations of their old history. And I know that sounds like a pretty obvious statement to make, but when you look at, for example, um, the, uh, you know, an example that I, that I look at a lot is, is if you look at China. Mm-hmm. You know, China effectively has an imperial structure of government yep. now. It just goes by a different name, has a different organizational structure. Yep. Uh, it, France, in a lot of ways, when I look at the history of the country and I look at their attitudes towards government, their attitudes towards work, it is almost reflective of of that centrally planned sort of system that would have existed under the the monarchy. Yep. But also- or, yeah, or even or, or Napoleon, right? He 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 yeah. was trying to do that uh, at the, the scale of Europe, right? So he, yes. you know, he was doing that from he wanted to run Europe from from Paris. Yeah, yeah. And he, <laughs> it, well, yeah, exactly. Just and 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 I think that like and 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 I think the the only difference is that you know there seems to be this 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 dogmatism there, but there's also. Uh, this real resistance to authority or this real like strong aversion to how do you put it the boss in a way or whoever's mm-hmm. at the top yes. of that right that's very true i think in france it is you know the idea of the boss is always is, is often pejorative mm-hmm. and also people are much more suspicious of success Right in America, people celebrate success. In Europe, you often get people who they're a bit jaded. They feel like if you if you rise to the top, especially too quickly, there's got to be something shady about it. There's a, I remember it was like it was Bono who said the difference between the United States and Ireland is in the United States, uh, a paper boy could be delivering to a really big house and look back and think, you know, someday I'm going to live in that house, and mm-hmm. in Ireland. Paperboy will go and deliver to a big house, look back at the house and say, someday I'm going to get that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is. That is definitely true of France as well. So your dad becomes disillusioned, moves here. What was his mission when he came here? I mean, it obviously it, it was obviously to get out of France, but what, what was it about America that was going to be better? At the time, I remember it was all about the relationship Americans had with work and the idea that you can really, you should be proud of working. Working in and of itself is something that is um, noble, right? Mm -hmm. And in France, sometimes there is a sense that like, there are definitely people who are proud in their work, but a lot of people will say to you, well, I would rather be on unemployment um, and, and, you know, get a paycheck every, every month rather than work a crappy job. And my father hates this mentality. So when we came to the U.S. for him, it was, first of all, about proving to the rest of the family that he could make it. But also what you have to realize that the traditional expat, uh, you know, expatriate um, experience that people think of where 
you work for a big company and they send you abroad, they get you a car, they get you a house, yeah. right? That wasn't it for us. Like my dad was basically on a temporary visa and if he didn't perform, he'd ha- he basically would have to go back to France, you know, with the tail between his legs and admit that he just didn't make it. So there was a lot of stress to be successful and to mm-hmm. make it. And really, in the, in the, I think in the short term for him, it was like, I got to get the green card. That was the focus for him. And he, I don't think he took really any vacation. He worked like crazy just to kind of be successful at his job and, and you know, achieve, achieve green card status. So we would Dude. be safe. Dude, that's one, th- another thing I'm going to throw out there for the folks listening as well. And these are the people who maybe haven't had a chance to really get to know the the culture of uh, Europe. And I'll just use Europe on the whole, even yeah. though you know there's no quote unquote European culture. But you know, for those who don't understand the the work ethic over there and the approach to life and everything, um, the starkest difference that I see between the American culture and, and the European culture is that in America, you really, you kind of have a gun at your back. You know, that's, yeah. that's kind of right. Yeah. Like yeah. it's it, like, like the stakes are high. Yeah. And, There's no safety net or hardly right? any safety net. Yeah. And, and so what I find is that the spirit that that instills in people is, is, is one of resourcefulness and, uh, and scrappiness and mm-hmm. grit. Uh, there's there's not a lot of time for leisure. You know, there's not a lot mm-hmm. of time for taking it easy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's there is also this. I, I think this sense of of empowerment, and I hate that word, but that's really the only thing I can use. There's like this sense of of sort of having your own destiny or your own fate in your hands. Where I, I think sometimes the tendency from what I've seen in, in Europe is to feel maybe a little more powerless. Yeah, no, I think I think that's on the whole fair. And the other thing that I would add is in America, there's much more of a stigma to losing your job or not being successful, right? Mm-hmm. In France, nah, you know, you want to go on unemployment. It's not like no one's going to say like, this guy's on unemployment. Like, you know, it's not, there's nothing, it's not nearly as shameful than I think in America. Once you got that right to vote then, yep. did you all vote right away or? Mm-hmm. Okay, you did. And and how did you align back then? So, you know, my father was right wing conservative type leaving mm-hmm. France. Um, and, you know, when we came to the US, you know, it became very clear that the Republican Party was the one that with whom we shared, you know, you know, values with. Mm-hmm. Uh, n- not that we didn't, you know, I would say, you know, ironically enough, <clears throat> growing up, I think my, some of my dad's sort of the people he looked up to, to American politics, obviously Reagan. And then the other person was, you know, JFK. But I think these are two kind of like politicians that I think we were most um, educated about and that we talked about the most. I remember like, you know, in France, actually in sixth grade, there was a question on a history class about who had shot uh, Jen F. Kennedy, and I, and I knew the answer to that. Uh, nobody else did in the class simply because, again, we discussed these things. I want to highlight the fact that you in school in France in the 1990s <laughs> discussed the person who shot JFK. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I would be hard pressed to imagine that I could ask anyone in America's public school system to name me one 
president of France, including <laughs> the current one, and I would get an answer. Yeah, yeah. They, uh. Yeah, they, they'd probably tell me Trudeau. Who's the first person you voted for then? Who's for president? So we came in the U.S. in 1998, 10 years later, 2008. It would have been McCain. Uh, it would have been McCain. Were you pro-McCain or were you just pro-Republican and McCain was the candidate? We really liked the guy. I mean, we were, I shook his hand, actually. I, I met him at the Exeter Town Hall uh, mm-hmm. when, he, when he came here. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we just, we liked his style. He was a straight shooter, you know, uh, and um, he just seemed to be, you know, to have the right pedigree. And we were just impressed by his military background. My dad was in the Navy as well. So the, the military thing was another thing that just really resonated with us. Yeah. Yeah, I can already tell that you and I are on a collision course come 2016 <laughs> because I was I was a huge McCain fan. The thing about McCain, though, looking back on it, discussing this with you, yeah. is he also made a very odd choice with his VP. Oh, yeah. Uh, in, in a way, though, uh, what is her name again? Uh, Palin. Yeah, Sarah Palin. She was a little proto, she was a bit proto-MAGA before, before MAGA, which is a little funny looking back on it. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. I didn't even really, I mean, I guess now that you connect the dots, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, she really was. What was your state of political being during the Obama years then? You know, I didn't, I didn't have any hate for Obama or anything like that. Um, you know, I never got into the whole, you know, he wasn't born here or anything or on any of that nonsense. I think your for World Act was really the only thing um, that I was... Um, you know, that I was, you know, sort of energized around. Yeah. Yeah. Obama was not an easy guy to not like, you know, right. I, you could not like his policies as a person though. I think it was very, very difficult to not like him, And frankly, to not feel like, yeah, you know what? I'm okay with this guy going overseas and speaking for us. Cause he, yep. you know, totally. So it's, so we're, we're now approaching presidential primary season. It's, Whatever, 2014, 2015. Yep. Where, where's your mental state? Are you frothy or are you kind of like, all right, you know, let's get a Republican in there? I remember coming out of it feeling like, okay, you know, this is, you know, definitely an opportunity for the Republicans to take over. He's been there for two terms. Um, so I, I, felt in, I, I felt good about the prospects of a, of a Republican presidency, you know, as we're, you know, heading towards 2016. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, so as the candidates started to appear, yep. how, how quickly did you make your choice? So I, I live in New Hampshire, which has a very uh, politically active culture, right? We're the first state uh, to vote. And, um, oh, yeah. Right? L- so, like you went to the France of the U.S., basically. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> and the cool thing was I got to meet, like I remember it was summer, I believe, of, of 2015, I was in the small village of Amherst, New Hampshire, right across the border, actually mm-hmm. near Nashua. And I remember being in this tiny little, you know, uh, you know, uh, town center, and um, and and the, the 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 GOP candidates were like, you know, basically having a parade through town. And we got to see we got to see um, who was the guy from from Texas? He was governor for a while. Oh, um, Rick Perry. Rick Perry. I saw Rick Perry. Um, there was Rand there as well. Uh, Rand Paul yeah. was there. Um, and there was Bush, uh, Jeb, uh, exclamation point was there as well. Yeah. So we got to see all the people. And I, and I think at the time I was most excited about, I think Rand. Can I just pause this for a second and say, I can probably be in New Hampshire 
30 minutes. <laughs> I've never, presidents never walk through my town. Not like we don't even get, pre- if, if a president lands in Massachusetts, it's to get in their car and drive up to New Hampshire. Right. We never, never see anybody. That's all. So I just had to gripe about that. New Hampshire gets all the attention. We see them all so, the time. Like I've shaken yeah, hands. Oh, yeah. We've shaken hands with them. I've seen them. I've been able almost to touch them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're probably going to meet the 2024 candidates like next week. Yeah. So Ron Paul, I mean, almost had this like MAGA type following in his own right. Of Yeah. He of, had a cult like personality, right? Yes. Um, he just had these views. He really, you know, he came with very fresh ideas. He was a true libertarian who like brought a very different perspective on, on so many policies. But then Rand gets knocked out. So who comes after Rand? I, you know, come out and I'll say it straight out. You know, I, I had, I thought Trump was a joke. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> absolute joke. My dad didn't like him at all. My dad, I remember my dad read his book, The Art of the Deal. And I, I think it was The Art of the Deal. It could have been one of his other books. But yeah. I remember my dad once telling me like one section of the book, like Trump says, like, if you, uh, if you got to be six, successful in life, you know, you got to be ready to leave anything behind, including your wife, you know, and, and again, don't quote me on that. I, you know, I think it, it was something to that effect, like basically like true businessmen, true successful people, don't let anything get in their way type of thing. And he just did not like that whole attitude. So I, w- I did not watch The Apprentice. I did not, you know, I was not into his brand at all. I was not into his shows at all. I was not. And I thought he was a buffoon. So 2015, you're there. You and I are on the same page so far. <laughs> like, I remember, you know what it was for me? It was 2004. Everybody was talking about The Apprentice. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, how hard is it to make money on real estate in Manhattan? <laughs> you buy it, you wait, you sell it. That's quite literally it. Yeah. You know, since we bought it for beads, Back in like, you know, whenever, the 1700s, 1600s, that's Manhattan real estate's only gone up. And I was just like, this guy is total bullshit. So 2015, you and I are on the same page. Mm -hmm. When does the transformation happen? The transformation happens. I remember distinctly at what point I, 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 I saw Trump in a completely different light. Watching one of the debates in Trump had started, you know, to start kind of name calling people. And the one that he had picked on in the very beginning was, was Bush. Um, and he had these crazy nicknames for everybody. He, he, I remember he kind of led with low energy Bush. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, it, I started to realize something about the man. I remember first I thought, wow, here he is, you know, Jeb Bush was at the time the heir apparent a lot of people thought he's a shoo-in for the presidency. I remember he had raised more money than anybody else. He had the backing of the Republican Party and really really thought like, this is really his his election. He's going to be the next, the next candidate. And Trump just went for the jugular. And he, he, he started picking on him again, this using this low energy Bush. Um, and he had, you know, he had nicknames for everybody. He started Mark, calling Marco Rubio, Little Rubio. And, you know, he had all these ways of branding people. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this guy is doing something completely different than anybody else. He is truly upending, you know, everything. It was a short video of an event that Bush is giving to like a handful of like older folks. And basically he's done with his speech and he says, please clap. And 
it, it was the saddest, like this guy just could not muster any kind of energy from the, like it was clear <laughs> that Trump had sunk him. Like Trump's mm-hmm. attack on him had stuck and he was done. Trump's energy was the thing that I was like, wow, this guy is bringing a different level of energy to this race. And, um, and so that was the, that was sort of like the, the beginning for me, uh, of what I, you know, of, of me becoming, <laughs> becoming MAGA. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it sounds like it was really personality driven. Yes. In the beginning. Okay. It, was, it was very much personality and attitude. And so we just felt really like, man, like this party can't get anything done. And Trump seemed to bring in something different that at the beginning was not so much policy, although it became something more very quickly. But in the beginning, it was the energy. It was the establishment vibe. And this guy was about something else. Um, and he didn't talk like a politician. He said things that were offensive. And whereas that rubbed people the wrong way, I started paying attention because I thought this guy has, he's got, he's got, he's brave to, to go out there and say this type of stuff. Yeah. So anyone who runs for office, there's the understanding that they're probably not going to do everything they say they're going to do. Right. And there's generally an, an understanding that, you know, if you get kind of one of those campaign promises, then that's a good thing. Yes. Definitely. And did did the fact that Trump was just so wholly offensive in some ways, did that increase your faith that he's he's not gonna lie to you at least? Was is that it or am I am I yeah. misinterpreting things? Yeah. I do he did come across as more genuine than others. At what point did his appeal become philosophical or yep. did it become philosophical? It did. It did. Okay. I think with Trump, it is as much what he stands against that I value um, and not just what he stands for. What do you feel he stands for, first off? He's unabashedly pro-America. And that is something which at the time felt in very short supply. Obama was somebody who tried, he wanted to be and I don't think it's a mischaracterization on my part to say this. I think Obama wanted to be a world leader, right? He mm-hmm. wanted to be somebody who just did not really represent America's interest, but also had the interest of his allies and tried to be, you know, a really a world leader. Um, and, and it just didn't really jive with me, especially because I feel like America gets the short end of the stick all of the time. I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I wanted to take a short break to point out a few things that you may or may not have picked up. Trump's rise and popularity comes from a mistrust in establishment politics, and you could even go so far as to say the failure of Joe Biden to lock this election up with so many negatives pointing against an incumbent is really further evidence that our current system fails to produce candidates with a compelling vision. And they don't because they don't have to. And the structures that enable our two-party duopoly are 100% to blame. Now, the goal of You Don't Have to Yell is to eliminate the two-party duopoly by 2029 by implementing electoral reform that will open the doors for minor parties. And this right now, post-election, is your call to join the movement and you can help 
by joining the YDHTY list on YDHTY.com or following You Don't Have to Yell on social media and helping me get the word out. You can also share this podcast with anyone you think might be interested. The bottom line is there are more than enough people dissatisfied with the two-party system. And if we organize, we can make real change. And this election has proven that we can only choose the lesser of two evils so many times before it becomes a constitutional crisis. So the change starts right here, right now. I'm looking forward to connecting and starting the long march to a more perfect union. And now, back to the show. So when you went to vote then, how much of you was casting a vote for Trump rather than casting a vote against Clinton or casting a vote against the establishment? I would say it was probably mostly against the establishment. Okay. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to blow things up in typical French fashion. Yeah. Yeah. What about, <laughs> what about, <laughs> was it just, was, was there anything? Cause you know, we make a big deal of like some of the, real grievances that drove people to vote like when you when you think the the one i'm all i always cite is the is the is the midwest because you know when i listen to trump in that anti-trade anti-globalist rhetoric i heard somebody targeting the midwest and so when the blue wall flipped i understood yeah because to be because to be frank right their grievances in a lot of cases started when hillary clinton's husband sign NAFTA. Yep. So there's a long history of the Democrats both looking for union votes and at the same time not really having their back when it comes to our yep. uh yep. Our, our our policies. So I understand that. It doesn't sound like you really had anything that distinct you wanted to blow up though. No. Am so, I wrong? No, I, I well, it's funny, as as you're talking, I'm I'm reminding myself of the time and the mood I was in because I, I my support for Trump in twenty twenty is quite different than my support for Trump in twenty sixteen. In 2016, okay. there were really three parts to the Trump agenda, three very mm-hmm. distinct ones. And this is nothing. This is and really, um, Steve Bannon has talked a lot about this as well because um, he's the one who kind of architected some of this as well. But it basically rested on three different parts. Number one was you know trade war specifically against China, and Trump pointing his you know wagging his finger at China, being like this country is taking advantage of us. Mm-hmm. And I would say four years later, I think Trump was proven more right than wrong about our relationship with China. China's stock right now is an all-time low, not just of COVID, but I think there's a lot of issue with IP uh, theft. There's a lot of issues with hacking, uh, lots of other issues. And so I think he was very prescient in like looking at China. It's like China is not the friend that you think it is, and they're getting the better of us, number one. Number two, immigration. Um, you know, Trump was like, we got to shut down the border. There are too many, you know, illegals coming across the border. This is unacceptable. As an immigrant, right, whose father um, had to suffer greatly to come to this country. Uh, and this is something that you'll, you hear a lot of immigrants talk about who came to this country legally, who had to do it the hard way. The idea that we would just let people come in, grant amnesty, any of that stuff robbed us the wrong way big time. I also believe that America's view of citizenship is truly degraded right now. But that's a whole other conversation. Number three, so let's recap. China, immigration. Number three, anti-war. We're sick of the wars that Bush had started and the wars that really Obama also kind of mixed up in. 
uh, you know, and we can have to debate this point, but um, his, you know, he, he intervened in Syria. He, he sort of, you know, talked, it was, he was, he wanted to be interventionist. But he also didn't want to be, he was sort of like, kind of like in between, but we just had a feeling that like the interventionist mode that really comes from with, you know, started really with Bill Clinton and he got carried on with, with George W. in a big way. And then that Obama picked up a little bit as well. We were done with it. We didn't want to fight anybody else's wars, especially because at the time, especially my support. I mean, I was a I was very young at the time. But when I yeah. supported W's wars initially, you know, I was like, all right, America is going to bring democracy abroad. We're going to give these people freedoms. Awesome. And the, the, on, the, on the sort of like the, the backside of that, I realized, man, the, the world hates us. And the world hates us for meddling in other people's affairs, but we're paying the ultimate price. Like our boys and our men and women are dying over there for people who are not even seem to be grateful for it. And so I think it was a general feeling that, we're, you know what? You don't want our help. You don't want us to police the world. Fine. We're done with that. Yeah. You're the only person that I'm going to give the immigration thing to. You're the only, you are the, you're the only like pro Trump person. I'm going to give a pass on immigration because everybody else was fucking born here and they're, and, and they're all like, oh, they should just do it the regular way. It's like, yeah, but they never did it. So I got, I got another question for you because I, first off, I, I was not a fan of Clinton. Um, Bill was. I was not a fan of Bill. I yep. was def- not a fan of Hillary yep. either and uh, and was not a fan of Trump. So I yep. went into 2016 really not liking any of my It was a bad truth. year for you. Yeah, it was there there've been better ones. There've been better <laughs> ones. And I think what I couldn't get past with Trump mm-hmm. was the First off, I I didn't really agree from a policy perspective. There was a lot I didn't agree with, um, a lot I didn't agree with, and there's a lot I still don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 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 second part of it was there was a lot of rhetoric that I just couldn't get by, and I think the one that sticks out in my head the most is the Muslim ban. I think white people can disagree over what's racist and what isn't. You know, and I think, and and I think there's a lot of, um, you know, there there's there's a lot of debate about did Trump mean this? Did Trump mean that? Um, I, I think the the Muslim ban is the one I'll cite because that is the clearest example where we where he did something that was wholly un-American uh, in the sense that he called for implementing a policy that used religion as a pretext for uh, your treatment under the law. And whether he meant it or not doesn't matter. That's exact. That was exactly what he said. And I, I really couldn't get by that. And then there was obviously there was a lot of other stuff he had, he had said as well um, in terms of uh, people from Latin America. There, there was a lot of there was a lot of demagoguery, and and that really bothered me. What were your feelings on that? This gets into a, a much bigger conversation about clash of civilizations and mm-hmm. um, our relationship with countries um, that are predominantly Islam. Mm-hmm. I think there is there you, you can do and I'll be perfectly honest I do not really remember the specifics of the Muslim ban I know that uh some versions of it were struck down in some federal courts I believe some mm-hmm. of it was upheld 
I don't really remember exactly, uh, to be perfectly yeah. honest. But as a general idea, I think that America has the right, you know, first of all, you know, it's not like you know, refugees from other parts of the world just have this God-given right to come to the United States. I just don't, I just don't believe that. I think yeah. the American people are allowed to prevent anybody from coming to the country that they don't feel like bringing over. Um, now, when you're talking about, you know, there are certain countries out there that, you know, have different relationships with the United States. And I think at the time, um, you know, after 20 years, nearly 20 years of fighting in the Middle East, I think it was just a feeling like we don't really, you know, it's a part of the world we're kind of trying to distance ourselves from. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, and the other thing to note is that I, you know, again, this gets into a whole other conversation, which we probably can't really get into, but yeah. um, there is, you know, to me, there is, uh, there is an incompatibility uh, between Islam and some parts of the Western world. Um, and, you know, is, is that to say that like all Muslims are bad? Obviously not. But I do believe that um, it's trickier for people of the Muslim faith to accept certain things about, um, you know, what we would call in, in, in France, laïcité, which is mm-hmm. um, the said you're a separation of church and state. Because, you know, this is actually happening in France right now, right? We, we have the second stabbing that happened. Um, there's a big call to arms uh, following, I don't know if you've been following this, but there was a French teacher who showed mm-hmm, his yeah. students a picture of the Prophet Muhammad. They took offense to that and he was beheaded. There was a second incident that just happened in the Catholic church where there was an attack on, on two elderly people whose uh, throats were cut and one of them was beheaded. And so there is friction between Islam and the Western way of what we think about free expression, mm-hmm. the way that we separate religion from politics. And so I do not think that it is, you know, racist necessarily to want to limit the influx of people from coming from certain parts of the world where there is a predominant way of thinking that is, that doesn't really play nicely with the way some of our values. I come from a different standpoint, which is, you know, getting back to my, you know, my background. Um, You know, the thing I, I like to say is my, my grandparents got here when it was still cool to hate the Irish. So they were right at kind of the tail end of the big yep. Irish migration. Yep. Um, and they were met with a lot of friction and a lot of what you hear about Muslims now really was applied to Catholics back then uh, in terms of, you know, their, yep. Feel the KKK the was against or against Catholics and and blacks. Oh, absolutely, and yep. and you hear and and I think so. What I hear a lot in the rhetoric in 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 the U.S. specifically around Muslims, and again, I I don't really pay attention too much to how the issue is discussed overseas, but um, yeah, I, I I see a lot of echoes there. I see a lot of this perception that these are people who aren't going to conform to our ways and. Uh, are uh, have an allegiance to a foreign power, uh, you know, foreign religious power. Um, and so I see a lot of that, you know, we probably won't figure that out. Uh, at least not, <laughs> at least not before like, you know, the next, the, the next election. Getting back to, to what we talked about earlier, you know, Trump really, it, it sounds to me like, like to you, Trump was somebody who was, unapologetically American yeah. and unapologetically behind those principles and, and behind and behind America's interests and behind uh-huh. America's interests. Yeah. And so how do you think that's all worked over the last four years? 
So I think from a foreign policy standpoint, Trump has been quite amazing. I'm going to mm-hmm. just come on and say it. The reason yeah. foreign policy has not been discussed at any of the debates is because he's done a pretty damn good job. Um, mm. I think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll cite a few things, right, that he's done. I think, um, one, he, you know, no more wars. <laughs> he did not start a new war. Uh, he kept his promise. He kept us out of, you know, meddling. Um, he did do certain very precise attacks on certain individuals. I don't know if you remember, but um, he eliminated um, the Iranian general uh, um, Soleimani, if I'm pronouncing him correctly. And I remember at the time, of course, it was like, oh, Trump just started a war with Iran. Trump just started a war with Iran. It's going to happen. He should never have done that. Well, he droned Soleimani out of the sky, a man who was a very bad individual. And what did Iranians do? They did nothing. They just took it. Um, and so, again, there was this whole feel like he's going to start a war with North Korea. That never happened. He's going to start a war with Iran. That never happened. He's going to move the uh, Jewish embassy to Jerusalem. That's going to rile up the Middle East. The war is going ha- mm-hmm. to happen. That didn't happen. In fact, uh, he's signing peace treaties on the Middle East left and right. And he was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. So, Could I, cor- could I just – I want to jump in on two things yeah. you said there just to correct. So um, because, of course, Iran did fire missiles back at us after mm-hmm. that. And in terms of the foreign policy not being mentioned, I think a lot of that could be attributed to the fact that we're in the midst of a pandemic. So the number one issue on everybody's mind is this disease. To, to the Iranians firing back, yeah, they ha- we let them do it because they had mm-hmm. to do something, but they didn't yeah. really do anything. There wasn't a war. <laughs> there wasn't a war. Was no, yeah. Yeah, they, they shot back because, of course, they'd be foolish not to show some sort of strength. And it really wasn't to the US. It was more to let everybody else in the region know that they have the abilities to fight back. But yeah. there was no way in hell where they were going to start a war with the United States. And they didn't. Yeah. And and so you're, but overall, like from the standpoint of what he's done from a foreign policy standpoint, you're pretty happy overall with, with how he's doing. Yeah. Um, the economy pre-COVID, I wouldn't blame anyone for crediting him for that um i i not that i i think there's there's a mix of some things that aren't necessarily long-term sustainable that go into that but again if you're going into this pro trump i'm not going to expect anyone to look at a great economy and then complain about their candidate Mm -hmm. um what what else again pre-covid what else is did, did you really like about what he what he how what he's done there is out there what I'm going to call the progressive ideology, pro-immigration, generally pro-abortion, generally, um, you know, woke culture, uh, mm-hmm. belief in a certain view of uh, the racist problem in America, systemic racism. There's a whole bunch of different things in there that make up what I think is the progressive ideology. Now, if you look at the landscape today in America, all right, you look at big media. ABC, NBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, um, are all believe in this ideology mm-hmm. to, to, to an extent to another. Um, you look on the tech side in corporations, whether it's blue chip companies at the corporate level or tech companies specifically, also all espouse this progressive ideology. Right? If you pull and you look at the political allegiances, the beliefs of people who are big tech companies or in the media, they're almost always on the left, a vast majority. In order to find mm-hmm. a right-wing person 
at the New York Times or at Twitter, you have to look really, really hard. I don't think that's a controversial statement. Mm-hmm. On top of that, higher education, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, the list goes on, also all espouse the progressive ideology. So what do you have? You have a situation where big tech, big media, big, um, big education, for lack of a better word, and also what I would refer to as the deep state, which is basically the large you know, government that we have now in America and DC specifically, all, you know, the majority of people there, the public servants also tend to espouse the public, the, uh, the progressive ideology. The only person that stands between basically the complete takeover of this progressive ideology is really Donald Trump. Mm. And so today, if you happen to be somebody who does not believe in the progressive ideology, not necessarily because you're a racist or you're a xenophobe or you whatever, Right, because you have genuine concerns with this viewpoint of the world, who do you look up to? Where do you turn to? And Trump, to me, in 2020, is basically the only thing between, you know, uh, between the complete takeover of the progressive ideology. Now, the one area where we still have "quote unquote" power is the Supreme Court, especially with um, the nomination of of ACB. Um, but again, there's talks, right? And it's a bit ambiguous of packing the court if, in fact, Biden comes through to increase the number of justices. So they do get a majority in there. So at that mm-hmm. point, they'll control the presidency. They'll control the judicial court by increasing the number of justices, which I find highly problematic. Um, and they'll likely take over the Senate. So basically, you have a situation where the American people, especially those who do not espouse the progressive ideology, are find themselves completely isolated and basically up against the establishment. I, I believe that America is a it's the United States of America, and I do not believe that a few urban centers, New York, LA, San Francisco, Boston, DC, Chicago, and a handful of others, I do not believe those cities should be the ones that just control everything. Um, and the people who live in rural areas are largely the ones who support Trump and who do not espouse this progressive ideology. Now, part of that is also because I think that the conservatives as a movement have done a horrible job at trying to make headway and hold on to the university or to try and, you know, play maybe a bigger role in the media. Whatever, you know, I'm not saying it's completely, you know, on 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 the left, but, I, you know, I think that the right could have done a lot more to hold on to these institutions. But in 2020, all these institutions are hateful of people who do not espouse progressive ideologies. And what's especially troubling now is that there is now this sort of cancel culture where mm-hmm. not only do these um, big media companies you know, have so much power, but they now have the ability to, to cancel you uh, and to resurrect a tweet from, you know, from, from years ago to call you a racist and then you know, good luck finding a job after that. And mm-hmm. so people are in an extremely vulnerable position. When I'm talking about the people, I'm mostly talking about what Victor Davis Hanson, who's one of my favorite uh, political commentators, calls the muscular class. What is the muscular class? Well, the muscular class are the people who, unlike us, do not have the privilege of sitting behind a computer all day uh, in the comfort of our own home wearing our slippers. There are people who work outside. There are people who don't just, you know, uh, don't have it easy. There are people who are typically did not go do not have a lot of college degrees or do not you know, didn't do a lot of schooling, but they're the backbone of this country. And those people are getting increasingly left behind and alienated. And the, the elites, the establishment resent those people. They resent their way of life. They resent their beliefs. They resent um, so much about them. 
And mm-hmm. I'm in sort of this position where I, I side with them. And that was one thing that what to me was very particular when I attended that Trump event at the Toyota dealership in 2016. I was looking around, Dan, and the people around were not like me. These were blue collar folks. These mm-hmm. were people who did not have the advantages that I have. These were people who did not work for a software company. And yet they're the people who I'm most related to. It's, it's interesting you're saying this because the, so the, the guest I had on last episode, uh, Liam Amara, he's a guy running as a Democrat in, uh, in actually one of California's remaining Republican districts. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was worked as a longshoreman and then as a fry cook uh, before going on to, uh, go be, be the first person in his family to go to college. Yeah. And so now he's, he went on, got his PhD in history, uh, is now a college professor, but still understands those, the, the working class mentality. And he comes at it from a much different angle where in, in his estimation, the issue is more about really elevating the standard of living for, the folks there, the folks in those, uh, the, the, or elevating the standard of living for the folks you, you know, for the muscular class, as you, as you refer to them, you know? Yep. Um, <laughs> and, and it's interesting cause I'm, I, I listen to his approach and, you know, it involves things like, uh, you know, for example, higher wage standards, uh, better education, uh, you know, better educational system, more vocational training, things like that. Um, and and then I listen to you, and it like your your solution is more to kind of tear down the structures that exist. Yes, I believe that this. So first of all, the structures that do exist, and we can focus on a couple. I think that um, mm-hmm. media and, and education are two pretty good ones because I think, you know, you think about the New York Times. They've been a, a you know a, a newspaper that's been around for you know, probably more than a hundred years, mm-hmm. um, and so these are sort of like establishment institutions, which I believe are actively working against the people and who I believe have no idea what the average working class person thinks like. If I could have done any job, I would have been a college professor, uh, just mm-hmm. to be between you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I believe in the university, but what it has become today, where it is basically uh, ideologues who work there, people who all believe the same thing. They all mm-hmm. believe, they all espouse the progressive ideology. They do not you know, want to understand or seek to understand opposing viewpoints. Um, and so what you have is you have a monoculture. They are um, indoctrinated with beliefs from various European philosophies, um, mm-hmm. a lot of Sartre, a lot of existentialism to go along with that, a lot of postmodernism. These are the reigning philosophies at schools today. I'm thinking specifically in, in liberal arts departments, obviously, um, but that's really who they revere. It's the Foucault, it's the Sartre, it's the Beauvoir, it's the Heidegger. I know because I literally went through it myself. Um, mm-hmm. You will. It almost. It's very difficult nowadays to find, you know, schools where the major the majority of the um, the academic staff is you know is more conservative. The conservatives mm-hmm. are very few and far between. Um, and so I think there is an ideology at the university level. And the, and the irony of it all about this, Dan, is that universities have also uh, done tremendous damage to the middle class uh, because they have also we have a, a student loan uh, issue that. 
you know, is a massive issue in this country. We're giving these students access to these ridiculous loans at ridiculous interests. It should be criminal, but somehow it isn't. Um, mm. And this is how we're paying for these professors who are, you know, in many ways are, you know, socialist and who rally against capitalism. And yet their paycheck comes from loans. And it comes mm. from them actually turning their students into indentured servants who cannot even uh, declare bankruptcy on their loans. So the, yeah. the entire education system not only is extremely hypocritical because it is actually the worst form of capitalism, even though the professors all profess to be anti-capitalist and, and pro-socialist and all the, all, the, all the rest of it. But at the same time, it pushes a monoculture, a single way of looking at the world that I believe is wrong and mostly driven by ideology. What you're telling me isn't uncommon of, of, of what I've heard, which is generally that um, there is a there is a a dominant culture that's reflected in media and reflected in academia that doesn't represent the entire country, and yep. and 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 and, and on certain subjects, there's there's a there's a there, there's not an environment that is open to debate. Nope. And 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 I, I would agree there. Um, I, I think politics in general all, is always reflective of the friction points in society. You know, mm-hmm. it's always it's always reflective of where the greatest disagreement exists because the role of political parties and the role of politics is to keep people from killing each other. You know, that's basically the idea, <laughs> uh, you know, and, um, and, and I would say that the friction points now are economic. Um, I would say they're racial uh, for sure. And I, I would say to an extent they're cultural, they're religious. We are now Thursday night, uh, polls are going to close Tuesday at eight. Um, and we're looking at what could potentially be another contested election. What are your thoughts on Trump serving another four years with an electoral win, but losing the popular vote? I think it's largely a non-issue as long as mm-hmm. he wins the electoral college fairly because the way that elections determine america is through the electoral college and i mm-hmm. do find there's a tendency to like when we don't like the outcome we change the rules the electoral college is a much more effective way to because otherwise literally it just becomes a few urban centers basically decide how this country is run and it's extremely mm-hmm. unfair for people who live in the country who choose to live in rural areas and away from from major urban centers what do you think if it's decided by the Supreme Court? Um, I mean, no matter what, I think that people, Trump has turned people, certain people, again, the establishment, uh, they're going to have a major mental breakdown if he wins again. It's just, you know, I mean, they impeached him last time. Who knows mm-hmm. they're going to throw at him this time around. I hope to God, um, you know, if he does win, the violence is, is minimal. Um, mm-hmm. But I genuinely am concerned about what is going to happen if he, in fact, you know, does win. If he gets to the Supreme Court, again, it depends on the circumstances. But I think that the more ambiguity there is about his winning, the more violence I expect and the more turbulence I expect. Yeah, I think what everybody should be hoping for is, number one, that their candidate win. Uh, 
number two, if they can't have it that way, that any other candidate has a decisive win. Hundred uh, percent. I would. Yeah, because- I would take. I would take a Biden. Uh, you know, straight up victory when I wake up on, on November 4th over, you know, some sort of confusing mess where Trump maybe won, but not, it's unclear. Uh, yeah. I rather, I rather just, you know, be done with it because I genuinely am concerned about the safety of people across this country. I said at the top of the episode that I finally understood the MAGA movement, and here's what I learned. People didn't vote for Trump because he represented some cohesive ideology or even because they liked him. They voted for him because they were disgusted with what they saw in American government and they viewed Trump as the one person who could tear down the establishment. And the analogy I use is it's sort of like following an ambulance in a traffic jam. You're not necessarily pro-ambulance, but sometimes you've got places to be. Now, I don't agree with it, but I do believe two things. Number one, the level of browbeating that the MAGA movement and the MAGA folks have received, whether justified or not, isn't helping bring them to some common ground. Uh, Number two, it's the direct result of a two-party system that's non-responsive to the will of the people, and it's now meeting its moment of reckoning. Now, I've posted the show notes on ydhty.com along with links to three other relevant episodes that feature one, someone who spent the first 10 years of his life in America as an undocumented immigrant. Number two, conversation with the daughter of Pakistani immigrants who discusses growing up Muslim in New Hampshire. And three, last but not least, an Irish dude who moved to Oklahoma and started collecting AR-15s. I can pick them. To find it, visit ydhty.com, click on the link that says Episodes in the upper right-hand corner. As always, YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam, the Rear Admiral Yaffe. YDHTY is produced by LeGrand Gino, Jason Putney, in the as-of-yet-undecided state of North Carolina. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bon chance.